Good morning, friends. Nice to see you all. Welcome to Awaken. My name is Micah. If you uh, are new around here, once a month we do this thing called Sacred Sunday, so we take down our screen and print bulletins. It's a real old world, uh, old world art, these bulletins. So if you don't have one and you want to sing along, you're going to need one. There are some over here and there are some in the back, so I would encourage you to do so. Um, and I want to begin this morning with what may seem uh, like a heavy topic, but it's actually a call to worship. Um, and I, I wasn't here last week in terms of me preaching and teaching, and so, uh, of course, a week ago this morning, many of us were kind of reeling with the news of the weekend's events and all the things that happened in Charlottesville, uh, my, myself included. Many of us listened and sort of watched with horror as some of maybe our worst nightmares were confirmed, that racism and bigotry and hate uh, was not only still alive in the human experience, but in our country and in uh, places of power in our cities and in our neighborhoods, and that was unsettling. It is unsettling. Uh, the last week, the ensuing days, more grief and horror and all kinds of feelings have come uh, to us. And so as your pastor, I, I really longed to be with you um, this weekend, and I was, I was excited and looking forward to seeing your faces and hearing your voices kind of fill this space. Um, Many of you know I sort of have an interesting relationship and feelings towards social media. Uh, as of late, I've really been honestly asking questions about um, my approach to it and whether my own feelings and responsibility as a pastor and as a person in a position of influence um, weighed with Jesus' words, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I'm just weighing those things and my role in that. So to the church that I love and, uh, and I'm honored to be the pastor of, um, with actual tone in my voice and compassion in my eyes, I want to just say a few things. Uh, first, racism and bigotry, uh, white supremacy, Nazi ideology, hate, and the demeaning of any human life is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ and is to be called out whenever and wherever it is found, not only denounced, but actively opposed by the people of God in the world in word and in deed. As the church of Jesus Christ, I exhort you to stand up and to stand with those who are marginalized and belittled, demeaned, dehumanized whenever we have the chance. This is the call of the gospel, and it is the, the job of the church in some ways. So to those of you who find yourselves in positions of power and of, of, of influence and privilege, I would exhort you to do what Jesus does, which is to voluntarily lay down power and privilege and position in order to serve and come under those who are disempowered. That's the gospel move. That's the Jesus move. And so whatever form that takes in your life, if you find yourself there, I want to encourage you to move towards it as your pastor. To my brothers and sisters of color, to any who have felt marginalized and made to feel less than, myself, our leadership team in this church, our uh, our denomination stands behind you and with you to the degree that we can as we learn how to do this better. We want to be committed to being learners, to being listeners, to hearing voices other than our own, to being advocates, maybe even shields when we need to be on your behalf. Uh, we want to commit to working for justice and love and hope in the world. And so my prayer for us this morning in this time, in this place, is that as a family of faith, we learn to hold each other. And we grow in this, in our sorrow and in our grief and our pain 
in our madness, in our anger, in our joy, in our activity, and in our stillness, that we learn how to do that well. So today, may the voices of God's people rise up in this room. May they spill out into the streets so that anyone in hearing of this building knows and hears a community that insists on hope, that declares that death is not the end, that light actually will and does triumph over darkness, and that with conviction we sing together a strong and faithful yes to the invitation of God to be people who are formed by compassion and love and hope and mercy and justice and equality. That's my hope, that's my prayer for us. So this is a call to worship in some sense. This is why we gather, to be reminded that the Jesus who lived and died on a cross says, come and follow me to sacrificial death for the sake of even your enemies. This is the way of Jesus and it's the call of Jesus and I invite you to it. To not just ascribe to it with your, men, with, with your heads, but to feel it in your bones, to sing it from the tips of your toes, that this is a gathering of a group of people who have come before us and many who will come after us, but we occupy today. And so we declare that death does not win, that this is not the end, that resurrection changes everything, and that we're after that. So together, would you stand and will, will you join me as we sing these songs? Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, my friends. Don't mean to cut you off, but um, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm cutting you off at this point. Um, I have a, I got a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover this morning, and I don't want to, and quite frankly. Um, We've got Koob and a cookout, so we'll get right to it. My name's Micah, if you uh, walked in late. Um, one thing that you should know before we jump in, our good friend Chris uh, uh, Kimston, who has been with us for the last three years or so uh, as an unofficial intern from Bethel. Chris is in the back waving. He's uh, served faithfully on many teams around here, and Chris recently received a job offer at his home church, yes, to be an associate pastor. Yeah, that's worth celebrating. Yeah. Kind of came out of nowhere for Chris and for us, and you know, we said, listen, this is an opportunity for you to do what you are studying to do at, at a church that knows you and that you love, and so we want to bless Chris and, and send he and Kelsey. So September 24th will be their last Sunday with us. Um, if you see them before then, give them a big hug and kiss, and uh, we'll send them out with blessing. We'll Much missed for sure, but appreciate Chris around here so much. So um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9. We have a lot to cover. This is the story of the flood. So parents in the room, if you have kids who are a little older who are with you, just FYI, this is where we're going. We're talking about Noah's Ark here. Um, this is a series that we're in the midst of called Lost in Translation. If you have not been with us, we basically look at difficult passages and hard passages throughout the summer, try to make sense of them, and arguably this is one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. Um, lots of people have lots of thoughts about this verse and this story. <clears throat> it's caused a lot of people to doubt the plausibility or the, the veracity of the Bible. Like, really, um, many people will say, are we serious about a flood? Is this, uh, some people will say, um, even if you are serious about a flood, the character of the God behind the flood is now in question. 
Uh, and so there's, there's honest questions that have come and that, and that often do come uh, about this event. And so what we want to do this morning, what I want to do this morning, is to try to offer some thoughts that might provoke you to think about this passage in new light, in a new way, maybe. Um, there are, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to divide our time up into two questions. The first question is the one question that comes whenever you talk about this, this passage. It's, did it happen, right? When we talk about the flood and Noah and the ark, like, did it happen, factually, historically speaking? What, what, how can we understand that? And then the second question that I think is actually a better question, a question that maybe offers a little bit more, um, is in the vein of what I think the original text was written for, uh, and it's a question of, is it true? Or what is being said about God in this passage is another way to say that. Uh, Krista Tippett says that questions elicit answers of their kind. So if you ask a simple question, you get a simple answer. Or if you ask a question that's kind of off the track or off the mark of what the text was written for, you get an answer that's off the mark of what the text was written for. But if you ask a question that's deeper, more profound, there's possibility of getting a deeper and more profound answer. And so I actually think that the second question is the more important question, but we're going to talk through this a little bit um, this morning. So if you, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm actually going to read a portion or portions of the story from chapter 6 to chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to, in just a moment, invite you to stand. It's a long one, so uh, get ready. Get your, if you've got a, an algene or something, have it with you. Um, and we do that because we're serious about the Bible. Like, I want to honor the text, and I want our postures to reflect uh, that desire. So I invite you to stand. And this is a portion of the story of, the Noah, of Noah and the ark from Genesis chapter 6 to 9. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Yahweh was sorry that he made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor, same word for grace, in the sight of Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all the clean animals, male and its mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, a male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the air, male and female, to, the, to keep their kind alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that Yahweh had commanded him. <clears throat> Noah with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. After seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth, and the rain fell to the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and Yahweh shut him in. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased, and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, and the waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters gradually receded from the earth. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. 
Then he sent him out, then he sent out a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set its foot, and it returned to him in the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took it, brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and he sent out the dove, and it did not return to him. Noah removed the covering in the ark, and looked, and saw the face of the ground was drying. And then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and took on, took every clean animal and every clean bird, and, offer, an offering, uh, and offered a burnt offering on the altar. And when Yahweh smelt the pleasing odor, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of their heart was evil. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather around uh, this text and this story, um, I pray that your spirit would be with us in a way that we sense and hear um, your invitation to us. Uh, My hope and prayer is that we would see you for who you are, God that whatever we've brought into this room that clouds our ability to recognize the truth about you and who you are would fall away, and that what would be seen and would rise above uh, the chatter would be the truth, who you really are, and who you've called us to be. I pray in the strong name of Christ and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Good job. You've made it through half of the sermon. As I said, we have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm just going to jump right in. The first question that I want to spend some time on is the most common question, and the question is, did it happen? Surgeon General's warning. Um, You don't have to agree with me on this. We talk at Awaken, and I really mean this, that the sermon and the teaching is not the end of the conversation. Um, I hope it to be the beginning of the conversation. A lot of times in church and in religious settings, whatever the pastor says is what goes. And that's not what we're trying to do here. We want to honor the tradition that we stand in and the teaching of God's word, but we also want to hold it in a way that recognizes, I don't know everything. Surprise, surprise, Hadley, I don't know everything. Um, And that there may be room for discussion on this. So you don't have to agree with me, okay? And I'm going to actually, I might rock the boat this morning. See what I did there? Story about the ark, rock the boat. I may rock the boat. I may offer to you a possibility or a way of seeing this that you maybe haven't thought about. And so uh, just Surgeon General's warning, uh, that's okay, all right? If you disagree with me, it doesn't mean that you value the scriptures more than I do. If I disagree with you, it doesn't mean that I value the scriptures more than you do. It means that we see it differently, and there's room for discussion and debate about why it's best to see it this way or that way. That's called theology, and that's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. That's the job of the church, and it's the job of you, not just me. All right? We good? So did it happen? Simply, and sometimes I I sort of give like, here's one way to look at it, here's another way. I'm just going for it today, all right? Did it happen? I would say simply no. Why? Koala bears. Scientists tell us that koala bears only and always have lived on the continent of Africa, or I'm sorry, Australia. Australia is 8,775 miles away from the Middle East. How does Noah get a koala bear on the ark? Have you seen a penguin swimming around in the Mediterranean Sea? No, you have not. How do penguins get on the ark? Honest questions from honest people that actually have some serious implications. Um, How do you fit... 
If it's true, 14, right, seven, seven of male and female, and one, 14 animals that are clean and two animals of, that are unclean of every species on the planet, that's hundreds of thousands of animals. How do you fit them in an ark? Even if you could build an ark big enough to fit all of the animals on the planet of Earth, how do you round them up? I have three children. There's no way this is happening. <laughs> I mean, seriously, when you start to think about the plausibility of this story, questions begin to emerge. Now, this may be anecdotal and it might be funny, but it's actually quite serious. I think we have to think through, as people who believe in the Bible or who hold the Bible in high esteem, like how do you answer those questions? Because those are honest questions from people who are interested. I want to move to maybe three more uh, sophisticated textual reasons why I don't affirm a literal worldwide flood where all of the humans and all of the animals save the ones on the ark are killed. And why I think that the point of this story is actually not that. But I think the point of this story is something far more profound and far deeper than how many animals were on the ark and how did they get them on the ark. Here are my three reasons, and I, I could go on and on, but there are uh, there's lots of reasons why I won't. The first is this. Why don't I believe in a literal flood where all of humanity and all of the animals, save Noah and those on the ark, were killed? First and foremost, pre-existent flood stories. This may be a shock to some of you, but there is civilization long before the Bible was recorded, which means that humans wrote things down long before the Bible was ever written down, thousands of years. One of them, in fact, the oldest written story, according to many, that humans have in our possession is a flood story. It's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. In it, this is the oldest story that humans have written down on some form, right? It's a flood story. In it, the, uh, the great sage is warned against an imminent flood, which is to be unleashed by wrathful gods. He builds a circular-shaped boat, lines it with tar and pitch, which is interesting because that shows up in our story, uh, that, and then carries his relatives, animals, grains. After the storms subside, the great hero of the story, like Noah in Genesis, releases a bird in search of dry land. This is the oldest story that humanity has written down on the face of planet Earth, and it's a flood story. And it existed long before the Bible was ever written. There are Babylonian, there's a Babylonian flood story. There are, there's an Assyrian flood story. There are multiple Mesopotamian, which is the region around where the Bible was written, flood stories, including the Epic of Gilgamesh and a story called Atrahasis. You can look it up if you don't believe me. I say all that to say this. It seems very clear to me that the biblical writers <clears throat> were borrowing from, or at least had in mind, previous source material. So they had other stories, other people who were trying to make sense of something that they wrote down and that show up in the Bible. To further prove this point are the similarities that we find between these other flood stories and the biblical account. This is basically the nexus of my teaching this morning. This is the white meat of the coconut. The similarities that we find in the other flood stories and the differences that we see in the flood stories. This is where the brilliance and the beauty and the profound nature of what we find in the Hebrew scriptures comes to the forefront and how it differs. But first, the similarities, which I think further proves the point that there are multiple stories circulating before the Bible was written, okay? 
Track with me, here we go. Here's a couple of them. One, the flood is a marker of before and after in human history. It's like an era of human history, okay? In the biblical story, from Adam to Noah, it tells us that there's 10 generations. From Noah to Abraham, it tells us that there's 10 generations. Very clear in the text, chapters six through nine serve as sort of a hinge point, before and after, right? In a flood story that comes out of Sumeria, which is again, in the context of the biblical writing, there's a list called the Sumerian List of Kings. And in this flood story, the writer makes it very clear about a before and an after, that there were these kings that served and ruled before the flood and then after the flood. Any guesses as to how many served before the flood and how many served after the flood? It's 10. Exactly the same. Also, we find similarities uh, in, this, in this regard. The flood is never, a, it's always a result of divine command, meaning that it's not a random happenstance. It's not a freak of nature that the floods happen. In all of the ancient flood stories, including the Bible, it's a result of divine command, which makes perfect sense if you understand how people thought in the ancient world. Everything was attributed to the gods, right? If the rains came, the gods did it. If the rains didn't come, the gods did it. If the sun shone, if the wind blew, if, the, if a hurricane came, it was all attributed to the gods. And so, if there was some kind of water event, which I think there was, it makes perfect sense that all of these ancient Near Eastern cultures would attribute that water event to the divine, including the Hebrew scripture, or the, the Hebrew telling of that story, which we have in our scriptures. So you have these markers of before and after. You have the flood as a result of divine decision. Another commonality that you find in all the flood stories is that there's a hero or a family that is sort of called out and asked to function as a prototype of the human experience, right? And then they, the, that person or that family, build some sort of raft or ark or boat in all of the other stories, including the biblical one. Of particular interest in the biblical account are a couple of words that show up. You may have uh, recognized I didn't, I, there are parts that were missing in my reading of the, of the story, right? What about the gopher barky barky? You guys remember that from VBS, right? Like, where was that in, in the reading that we read? Um, the idea that the ark lands on Mount Ararat at the end, right? Uh, that the, the rain came, or um, that the, the waters rose up from the earth. Some of those things were missing. The word used to describe the wood for the boat is gopher wood. The word used to describe the pitch on the inside of the boat is kofer. The only time in the entire Hebrew scriptures that these two words are used are right here in this story. They also show up, guess where? Other flood stories. In the Akkadian flood story, the same word, the same root word for gopher wood and kofer, the pitch, are, are found in the Akkadian flood story. So again, the point I'm trying to make is that it seems clear to me that the biblical account of the flood is borrowing from pre-existing material. And that maybe the point of this story in the Bible, when it was originally written, was not whether or not it happened as the exact details are given, but rather something else. And we'll get to that. One more uh, reason why I don't affirm a worldwide flood where all of the people and all of the animals, save those in the ark, died. Inconsistencies in the biblical account. If I were to have read the whole story from Genesis 6 to chapter 9, here's a couple of inconsistencies that would rise to the surface if you're listening. Number one, 
Was it 40 days in the ark or was it over a year? When you read in Genesis, I would encourage you to go back and read it yourself on your own time. There are two different dates given. 40 days and 40 nights, the rain came and Noah was in the ark for 40 days and then God asked, invited him out. And then in another place in the same story, it says that it was over a year that they were in the ark. Which one is it? Uh, were there seven clean animals and one unclean animal, or was it two by two? Because both are given as options. Well, it can't, it can't actually be both. Uh, was there a sacrifice offered at the end or not? Because in one part of the story it says that there is, and in another part of the story there isn't. Was it a raven or was it a dove? Both are in there. Uh, was it the rain that fell from the sky, as it says in one part in Genesis, or was it that the heavens opened up and the earth opened up and water basically filled the space? Which is it? So as you read the biblical account, there are massive inconsistencies, and it appears that they are at odds with one another. Now, without going into terrible detail and boring you all silly, I would just say this. There's a lot of really, really smart people who would argue that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah was not written by one single person, but actually is the result of multiple sources combined and compiled at a later date. I would include myself in that category of people, which is why I think this is one of the only reasons you can explain all the inconsistencies, that what I read to you was attributed to one of the sources, the Yahwist writer of Genesis, and the other source, which I left out, was attributed to the priestly source. Now again, I'm not going to go into all the details because you're clearly bored out of your gourds right now based on all of your glassy eyes. But I'll just say this. It further proves the point for me that this document, Genesis, is not a did-it-happen-this-way-exactly kind of document. That's not of interest to the author who wrote it at all. You and I, we live in 2000 what? 17, that's right, friends, 2017. And when we say history and we say fact and we say data, we think of that in a certain way that I would argue is completely and utterly foreign to an ancient Near Eastern document and piece of literature like the book of Genesis. The author is not interested at all in the question, did it happen this way exactly? I think the author is interested in something far different than that, which is why, in this case, there seems to be these inconsistencies. Let me move on before I do that, so we're all clear as to what I'm saying. Do I believe in a worldwide flood where all of the humans and all of the animals are extinguished from the face of the planet, save the ones in the ark? I do not. I do, however, affirm, I think at most you can affirm, a massive localized water event that happened before the scriptures were written, that all of the ancient Near Eastern cultures that wrote about it were trying to make sense of who God was and themselves in the midst of all that, which is why it shows up in multiple cultures across the ancient Near East. So at most, I would affirm, there's some kind of water event. There's some kind of, which makes a ton of sense when you start thinking about the Tigris and the Euphrates and the way water historically and archaeologically has flowed down that valley. And that's a whole other Discovery Channel, like two-hour special, so you can look for that later at another date. But I would affirm some kind of something that happened. 
that the writers of the ancient world were trying to make sense of, including the Hebrew people. Who is God? How do we find ourselves here? What is this whole thing that's happening? And now let's move to the more important question is, is it true? Or said differently, what is being communicated or offered as true about God and God's nature in this story? That question, my friends, is of utmost importance, and I think at the heart of what the author originally intended when they wrote this. What are we saying is true about God in this story? For that, you have to look at the differences between the, two, the, the, the stories in the ancient Near East and the biblical story. So let me try to land this thing, and we'll bring her back down to Kub and hot dogs. Her just like, Differences between the ancient Near Eastern flood stories and the Bible. First and foremost, the motivation for the flood is absolutely clear in the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and it is connected to a moral breach of limits that God, the divine, places on humanity and the world that we live in. From the get-go of Genesis, chapter 6, we know that the reason for this flood is not arbitrary and random, because in all the other flood stories of the ancient world, the reasons for why it happens, they are bizarre. Gods are at war. Somebody's angry. Somebody didn't get a Coke. Somebody's sleeping. Uh, crazy town. In the Bible, it's clear that humanity has made choices that has led to a downward spiral of evil and destruction that ultimately will lead to death, and which assumes a moral trajectory for the human experience. That you and I, living on planet Earth, that there is a, there is a, a shalom way to live. There is a way to live as humans that brings universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. The Hebrew understanding of the word peace or shalom. So in the scriptures, in the biblical story, it's really clear as to why this flood is happening. And it's connected to our choices. It says that humanity was evil only only evil all the time. The idea that like, if left on its own, this train is headed off a cliff is the sense that you get in the biblical story. Very different than the other flood stories. Also very different is that God in the Hebrew story is engaged, is in control, is sovereign, is not absent and wandering around the heavenlies wondering what's for breakfast. Different. In the Hebrew story, God is like, in it. God is amidst it. God is, you could say, Emmanuel, with them. In other stories, this is a quote, the gods who let the flood out in the Mesopotam one of the Mesopotamian stories, the god who let the flood waters, it says, and I quote, were frightened by the deluge, and they cowered like dogs crouched against the outer wall. There's this sense of like, there, there is no control over these forces that have now taken, and the gods are sort of want, trying to pull back, and that is not the sense that you get in the scriptures. You get the sense that there is a God outside of our experience as humans that is sovereign, that is in control, that, that nothing escapes the gaze of. Very different from the other stories. You also have that the flood is for the purpose of new creation. In all the other flood stories, the gods are angry, they're bitter. It's like wrath and fury and retribution is what channels and what is the genesis of this flood. Rather, in the story of God, in the story of the scriptures, God is brokenhearted. God is, uh, it says he, some translations say, God repents 
or for this like, tragic scenario that we find ourselves in. And the purpose of the flood is not for death and wrath and fury, but actually for new creation. That God takes this train which is headed off a cliff towards death and only death if, if nobody intervenes and says, actually, we're going to pull out light. We're going to take a seed, a seed and plant it so that something new might be born. That idea is completely foreign to any of the other flood stories. That God is engaged, in control, sovereign, and actually is interested in our lives, the flourishing of our lives, and the creation that we live in. Lastly, I'll say, totally different, is that God chooses freely to be in relationship with us. When I read our story, we missed like the, last, the, the, the pinnacle, the best part of the flannel graph story of death. The rainbow, right? We missed the rainbow. And of course, we know that the rainbow is a symbol of covenant. The fact that God, the God of all creation, the God who sees it all, breathes life into it and animates it all, that God says, I choose freely to be in relationship with you. Friends, I don't know if I can overstate how bonkers crazy that is in light of everything else that's being written at that time about God's nature. That God desires us. That God has not abandoned us. That God is with us so much so that God enters a scenario that is headed towards death on its own, pulls something out of it and says, let's keep, let's preserve, let's redeem something of value here. Let's create something new. What is being said about God in this story is, I think, a profound question. And this is one of the most beautiful renderings in the ancient world about the nature and the character of God and how God relates to you and I. What is being said? God is sovereign in the midst of the swirling chaos, that there is someone, something out there holding it together, that you are not alone. What is being said about God? That there is a moral compass to our lives, that we are not free to do whatever we want to anyone we want to, that there is a way to love and be in relationship with one another that is life-giving and flourishing and born out of God's heart. What's being said about God? That God has not given up and even in the most difficult of situations, which seems to be dark and only dark, God says, no, there's light, and God draws that light out of darkness. It sounds like we've heard this story before, right? Darkness, of a dove, the spirit hovering over the surface of the water, and God drawing out light. Oh, that's interesting. That might be another. What's being said about God? God chooses us to be in relationship with us freely, let me close with this, and I really do mean this. Close. Is it true? We read a story like this, and it's thousands of years old, and it is a million miles from us, and I would submit to you it's actually closer than you might think. Have you ever made a mess of your life so much so that you needed somebody else's help to get out of it? Have you made some choices in your past that led you to the place where, on your own, it was an absolute mess? and you didn't know how to get out of it. You know the flood. You understand the truth about making a mess of our lives to the degree that we cannot, on our own, make sense of it, and someone outside of us coming and saying, I know the way home. Follow me. One of my friends, Steve, tells a story about his sister in a book that he wrote where his sister ran it off the rails, right? 
and found herself living in some city in Tennessee. And just at the end of her rope, calls home and says a few simple words, come and get me. And mom and dad, like a mom and dad would and should, rent a U-Haul and show up on a doorstep and find their daughter who has wandered off the trail and says, there you are, it's time to go home. You know the flood. A group of people who have made a mess to the degree that there is no hope. And someone who reaches in and says, actually, I know the way home. Let's make something new. Is the pattern of life coming from death consistent with your experience in the world? Have you ever thought about that? You talk to doctors, and like, again and again and again, I hear these stories of a doctor who says, a child was born in a family and a matriarch or a patriarch dies. At the same time, like, in the same breath, a new life is born and someone in the family passes. This happens all the time. Do you live in this state? That's a question. Have you been to spring in Minnesota? You know the flood. Everything is dead. You think there is no hope for anything to come from this godforsaken barren wasteland and then out of nowhere a crocus comes up out of the ground and it's like, no, 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 no. Life is just beginning again every spring we know the flood. Where life comes from death, from a, from a like, cosmological level, life comes from death. Did you eat today? Something died so that you could live. It happens every single day. It is as close to you as the skin you wear. Resurrection is everywhere, which is why the story of Jesus and resurrection really matters. You might be thinking this morning, Micah, you're saying that it doesn't matter that anything in this book happens, actually happens. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this particular story is a certain kind of literature which never intended to ask that question. I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, that one matters. The whole thing hangs on it. If it didn't happen... I'm just funny. <laughs> Sometimes. Is the pattern of life coming from death consistent with your experience as a human? Then you know the flood. If God is gracious in quickening the death that is already impending for humanity in this story, and God offers a new creation and a new way forward, does this look like, sound like, anything that we know to be true about God in Jesus? It's consistent. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know the heart of God. So maybe, just maybe, this story is not so much about how many animals went on the ark, or how big was it to get them all in there, or is there a fossil record of the ark on Mount Ararat? I, maybe, I don't really care, actually. What I do care about, something that I think is far more beautiful and greater, is that something, stand, this story stands in stark contrast to these other stories. And the nature of God is being talked about and is on display. Something says that God is powerful and sovereign and present amidst this story and your life. That, God, that affirms that God doesn't give up even when it appears that there is no hope, but God has something up God's sleeve and brings life out of death, a new beginning, a light out of darkness. And so maybe this God is actually as beautiful and as breathtaking as the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. 
And maybe, just maybe, you've read this story your whole life and thought, that God is mean, is retributive, is wrathful, is quite frankly, abhorrent. But this reading of this text offers a new possibility. That maybe this God is as beautiful and as breathtaking as the person that we see in Jesus. That it confirms that God is with us and for us and brings new life out of death all the time, every day, all around us. So maybe this morning you could take a step towards that God. And maybe this morning you could be found in the gaze of a loving God who says, I see you. Hope is, death does not win. Darkness does not win. Maybe you'd be invited to consider moving towards that God this morning. Let me offer a word of prayer and invite you to a time of silence. God, this morning, as we uh, think about and study and try to make sense of a story that, quite honestly, is really troubling on a lot of levels, I pray that by your spirit, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is beautiful, whatever is good, whatever is a reflection of you and your nature stays, that it remains, that it lasts, and that anything that I have said that is not consistent with who you are, God, that everyone in this room would forget it, including me. Conform us, make us into the image of your son. Form us in compassion and love and justice and equality and hope. God, make us into those kinds of people. So I pray that in the next moment of silence, God, by your spirit you would meet us, that you would visit us in a, in a very real and profound way and invite us forward into the heart that we see in Jesus that says, come home, follow me, I know the way. Would you stand if you are able for a benediction as we close? And as we do... Uh, I just want to remind you, um, community outside of Sunday morning is absolutely essential. It's so important. Don't trust me, right? Wrestle with this stuff. Take it. Push back on it. Have conversations. Ask questions. And the space to do that is not this. It's in homes and it's in community where you're loved and you're known by people who you trust. So I just can't, under, I can't overemphasize the importance of life groups and whatever form that takes in your life. Uh, if you're not involved in community outside of Sunday, there are a number of ways that we do that at Awaken. I'd be glad to offer those to you and, and share more about that, but it's so, so vital. Um, so please think about that if you're not involved in that. Uh, as you go, receive this blessing, uh, which has been given by people like me for thousands of years. Moses was the first to give it over a group of people called the Israelites. The Lord said, this is how you are to bless them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. I will see you on the coob pitch. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakening community or on Twitter 
Play with the community. See you next time.